Wow. Six. Brian, choir practice is Sunday night? The, it, next Sunday, the 12th. Okay. Uh, Revelation chapter 6 this evening. Am I on? I got it right. Will wonders never cease? Revelation chapter number 6 this evening. And verse number 9. Verse number 9. And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season, until their fellow servants also and their brethren, that should be killed as they were, should be fulfilled. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you'd help us tonight, and always, Lord, we, we need your help to understand your word. And we pray then that we would have that guidance, give to us good understanding, clear understanding of what you have said. In Jesus' name, amen. So we have just really entered into uh, the portion of the book of Revelation that deals with what the Old Testament calls the day of the Lord. And uh, we've spent a couple of weeks talking, specifically looking at numerous Old Testament texts and a couple of New Testament texts that talk about the day of the Lord, a future time when God will begin to pour out his wrath upon planet Earth. Uh, The first four seals we went through last Wednesday night, Uh, the four seals uh, which gave rise to four different horses, uh, each of them apparently representing an individual and the power that he would wield. And we will get to this a little bit in a little bit more consideration when we turn our attention ultimately to Revelation chapter 7. But the judgments of the first four seals are judgments upon men. And they are upon the inhabitants of the earth. And we see apparently the rise to power of the Antichrist. And we see the speedy turn to violence that comes as a result of his activity upon the earth. Um, And then the fifth seal is opened, and it is, of course, the one that we just read this evening. What I want to do is just kind of walk through these three verses. It's not a lengthy portion. And let's just kind of read them in sequence and kind of talk to them And then we'll come back and try to answer some of the questions that we might find in the text. And I'm not suggesting for a moment that the questions I have are the only questions or an exhaustive list of questions. 
But I do think that they're probably some of the most obvious questions that we might see. All right, so again, looking at verses 9 through 11, what John sees and what we might inquire about what John sees. Okay, so once again, we just kind of want to look as carefully as we can and we just, right, we want to approach folks every text, right? I mean, we just, we come to every text and really, truly, our first question should be, what does it say? What does it, what does it say? What is it telling me? And then we want to try to relate that to all the things that are going on around it. For instance, when he had opened the fifth seal, who? And we know from chapter 6 in the very first verse that it is the Lamb. And we know from chapter 5 that the Lamb is Jesus Christ. So it is Jesus Christ who is undoing the seals that are bringing about this devastation or these devastating events upon the earth. So when Jesus had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar, which to me immediately raises two questions. Question number one, what altar? What altar is this? And question number two, why are they under it? Why does John see something under the altar? It's not on the altar. They are under the altar. And what John sees are souls. The souls of them that were slain. Now that's a Greek word, and that's one of those Greek words that we use all the time. Uh, we, we speak Greek fairly regularly because we use these, this kind of language. When we use the word psyche, this is the word that we have. It would be pronounced a little bit differently in the Greek. But this is the psyche. This is what John sees. And I, I'm going through all that, folks, because it is a very specific word. He is, he is specifically pointing out that he is seeing the invisible component of humanity. He is not seeing necessarily their bodies. He would use a different word. Right, and and there are some overlap because there are some times that they're used in a in a overlapping kind of way. But but generally speaking, we have three words. We have a word that describes the body, we have a word that describes the soul, and we have a word that describes the flesh. When the Bible talks to us about being in the flesh, they that are in the flesh, right? That's kind of the invisible, sinful ambition of men. These are just their eternal souls. Which raises, of course, the question, where is their bodies? And this we will come to in a little bit, because this is not an inconsequential question, right? We're not just scraping around looking for minutia. What does the fact that John sees souls without bodies mean to us? Is there any significance into it? And I'm really not trying to be funny here, folks, right? Because remember, we are dealing with inspired imagery, How many souls are these? And how many souls can you fit under an altar? And again, I'm not trying to be funny, but when I read the text, right, what comes into my mind is this group of disembodied spirits kind of huddling together under a table. And and there they are. The souls of them... They were slain for the word under the altar, the souls of them that were slain. What what does 
What does John see? Excuse me. What does John see and what do we make of this? How many souls? And we're not given a quantity. What we do know is that they are there because they had been slain. This is the same word used to describe Jesus in Revelation chapter 5. It is a word that refers to being butchered, cut up, slaughtered. So that this is not a peaceful death. These are violent deaths. And the reason they are slain is because of the word of God and the testimony which they held. And again, I don't think that we should really, I mean, we have two kind of things out there, but but they're describing the same thing. They held the same testimony as the word of God, and they would not deviate from it. And for that cause, they were martyred. They were butchered for this. And what they are doing in verse number 10 is crying with a loud voice. And they are appealing to God, whom they describe this way, O Lord, holy and true. O Lord, holy and true. And their request is this, Why do you not avenge our blood? And why do you not judge them that have killed us? How long... Are we going to be in this position how long until you avenge us? And then in verse number 11, folks, adding to the mystery of the imagery, all of these souls, these psyches that had no body, were given white robes. They were given white robes, which again, raises the question, how do you give a robe to a soul? Can a soul wear a robe? And they were told to rest, verse 11, white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them, and we do not know who told them that. We can presume that the Lord is responding to their prayer. They are told that they should rest yet for a little season, until their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. So we have an unfinished martyrdom described in Revelation 5, 9 through 11. All right, so there we just, we kind of walk through it. And again, I'm not suggesting for a moment that I have exhausted all of the questions that there might be. But there are some obvious questions here that need to that that come to mind how many why under what altar is there any significance to the fact that they are described as souls and not bodies so let's move secondly then into this let's try and expand our understanding of what is happening certainly folks we are dealing with biblical imagery and we know that we knew that going in because the entire book of revelation was given in signs it was signified john is trying to give us a written account of something that he saw write a report of what you saw happen and we have 
all of these images that are, con that are contributing to in their individual components to this larger picture of God's victorious judgment upon the earth. <clears throat> so one of the things then, of course, that we want to recognize immediately is that we are dealing with a numerical sequence. This is number five. The first four seals have been opened and we are now dealing with seal number five. <clears throat> this is not judgment. Right? When the seals are open, folks, right? we have six seals or seven seals that are opened. Seven of the, six of the seven seals contain a specific and definite judgment. Horses come. They bring judgment. God brings judgment. But the martyrdom is not a judgment. Some people think that it is. But the martyrdom is not a judgment. You're not being judged because you die for the word of God and for the testimony that you hold. That's not a judgment that is imposed upon you. What I would suggest, what I would think, is because of the sequence, because we are at seal number five, that we are safe in assuming that the first four seals have contributed to the scenario in which these people are being martyred. And we're going to come back to that, right? Who are these martyrs? Where, where did they come from? And we'll talk about that in a moment. What altar? What altar is this? Well, in the Old Testament, folks, with reference to the temple, there are two altars. One of the altars is kind of outside in the courtyard, and it's fairly large. It's about seven and a half feet square. So it's about the, about the size of two pieces of four by eight plywood laid out together. Um, it is the altar in which sacrifices were offered. It had horns, um, places, you know, uh, perhaps to, to tie down uh, animals as they were being sacrificed or slain. You can read all about that altar in Exodus chapter 27. It is described in great detail. The other altar with reference to the temple is the altar of incense. And that one is found in Exodus chapter 30. It is much smaller. It is about 18 inches square. It is the one that is covered with gold. And it is actually inside the holy place, just outside of the very presence of God. As you might imagine, if you think about this, right, because we have two Old Testament altars with reference to the temple, we have 273 opinions about what altar is being described in Revelation chapter 5. Is it one of these two altars? Is it some kind of hybrid altar? Is it none of these altars? If I was going to pick a spot, I would probably come down on the side of it being a reference to the altar of incense. That 
that if we're going to correlate it to something in the Old Testament, and I think we probably should, because so much of Revelation is anchored in the Old Testament, that it is not the sacrificial altar outside the courtyard, but it is the altar of incense, a heavenly dimension or version of that altar. These martyrs have access to God. They have the ability to communicate with God. They are in, the, in that holy place. And they are not on the altar. They are under the altar, which is probably a reference to what happened to their blood that was shed. And Revelation 5 and Revelation 8 both tell us, and I'm just going to, you can turn to them. I mean, we're in the book of Revelation. But, but in both of those references, well, look at Revelation 5, 8. Let's just back a page or two. <clears throat> Revelation chapter 5 and verse number 8. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of saints. And Revelation 8.3 tells us the same thing with reference to incense, right? Incense and prayers of saints are offered. They're all connected together. Another angel came, stood at the altar, having a golden censer. There was given unto him much incense that he should offer the prayers of all saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And so we have these saints praying from an altar. And again, it, it doesn't, right? Our understanding of the book of Revelation doesn't hinge upon getting the altar right. But I'm going to guess that's probably the altar that is being referenced there. Revelation 8.3, Revelation 8.4. So what we have, folks, right, because we have this symbolism. What we have are a group of martyrs who are appealing to God for vengeance and are being told to wait because the number of martyrs has not yet been fulfilled. Right? So we have some already martyred who are appealing for God to avenge them, but God's position is we're not done with martyrdom yet. There are more martyrs to come. Which then raises this question, who are these martyrs? When we read about these souls that are under the altar, who are they? I was listening to a guy preach this week. And not Revelation, not that it would have mattered, but he wouldn't preach from Revelation. And as he was dealing with it, he said, so we have, we have several options to work through. And then he paused and he said, I know people really hate it when I go through all the options. Nobody hates it more than my wife. And so in the interest of having a not hostile dinner today after church, I'm going to do this as fast as I can. So I just started to laugh because I thought, how many times have I come here and said, here are all the options, right? Or here are the major theories. But who are these martyrs, all right? So we do need to kind of consider who they might be, right? Some people think that these, are, um, these martyrs are representative of all martyrs from all ages, Right, that if you go all the way back to the first martyr Abel and you just, keep, you just keep adding their blood and their martyrdom to the story and here we are, Revelation chapter 6 and we have all these martyrs. The problem with that, folks, is you can only believe that if you reject any concept of the rapture. 
Right? Because, all right, let's take, let's take an obvious martyr. Let's take the Apostle Paul. If these martyrs are all the martyrs that have ever been, then Stephen and Paul are going to be in that number. Well, if Stephen and Paul are in that number, then there's no rapture. Or at least there's no rapture like we would describe it. Or it certainly hasn't happened yet. Because at the rapture, folks, 1 Corinthians 15 is incredibly clear. At the rapture, we get bodies. We get new bodies. And these are souls. They don't have bodies. So this is one of the reasons that when we look at this, we ask, does the fact that we're having souls described matter? Yeah. Yeah, it matters a lot. Let's just suppose, folks, that it would be any of us that was martyred. Right? Our hope is that the trumpet is going to sound and we're going to be snatched out of here and we're going to be in an instant, in the twinkling of an eye, completely transformed with a new body. So this cannot, I mean, if, if everything we believe about the rapture is true, then these saints cannot be the martyrs of all ages. Some people would argue that these are martyrs from the Roman era, <clears throat> right? Because there are a number of people who believe they were reading events that came to pass in AD 70 with the Roman destruction of the temple, and these would be those martyrs. And if, if that is how the book falls out, then it could be those martyrs. But of course, we've already dealt with this, and I've already told you that I'm taking pretty much a futurist position, and so I don't believe that we're reading about events that are describing A.D. 70. I believe we're reading events that have not yet happened. And that leaves us then with what is the most likely scenario, that these are tribulation-era martyrs. Because, again, as we would teach it and understand it, and not because you know, we start there, this is what we believe, so we're going to bend the Bible to fit, but we would understand the Bible to teach that before God begins to pour out his wrath on the earth, 1 Thessalonians 5.9, we are going to be taken out of here, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians 4. We are going to be forever with Christ in new and glorified bodies. So we're going to be part of a different community of people that will include those who had been martyred, men like Stephen and Paul. But this is a completely different set of martyrs. So I think that these are specifically tribulation era, era martyrs. <clears throat> now, again, folks, Right? Part of the debate that rages and part of the controversy about that is that these, ro these psyches are given robes. Does that mean John saw their souls but they had bodies? Does it, you know, we, just, we, just, we can just keep going in circle and circle and circle and the questions are virtually unanswerable. But again, I think because of the fact that they are introduced at this point in time, Right? We're dealing with sequence. One, two, three, four, five. We have martyrs. 
the martyrs come at this point in the tribulation. This is pretty consistent with what Jesus said in Matthew 24, 9 through 14 with the Olivet Discourse when he was talking about the beginning of sorrows. The world has been unraveling since the very first seal. And people are being saved. <clears throat> now again, there's more. There's lots of questions about timing, and we will ultimately get to this, but Revelation 7, chapter 7, verses 9 through 17, describe literally this flood of people who are being saved during the tribulation. So during the time of God's great judgment, there is going to be worldwide evangelism. And there's going to be people coming to Christ as a result of that. One of the things we want to remember, folks, and, and we, of course, will, will, we will talk a little bit more about this as we work through chapter 6, or as we get into the sixth seal, but, you know, these things are, we believe that these are literal events happening on planet Earth, which means that the inhabitants of Earth are going to be interpreting them in light of what they believe to be factual, what they believe to be true, what they believe to be real, what they believe to be understandable. This should not, look, this should not come as any kind of a revelation to us, folks. I mean, right, let's, just, let's just back away for a minute from any hostility we might feel about any position anybody has taken with reference to COVID. And let's just think for a moment about the multitude of ways that COVID is being interpreted in the world around us. Is it a plague from God? Is it a natural phenomenon? For every person with a medical degree who is telling us the vaccine is good, safe, and effective, there is somebody with a medical degree telling us that it's poisoning the body, sterilizing the race, and implanting tracking devices in human beings. For everybody who is on one side of the equation, there is somebody on the other side of the equation. All yelling that they're right. All yelling that the other guy is wrong. All yelling that the evidence is on their side. All yelling that the other guy is ignoring the evidence. Do you think when the tribulation begins, that kind of stuff is going to stop? Now, it is going to stop, and that's what happens in the sixth seal. But it doesn't happen in the first four seals. Unbelieving human beings are interpreting the events that are going on in the world. And since, folks, the primary character who is driving planet Earth apart from Jehovah God is the Antichrist, there's going to be distinctly religious overtones to his world. In other words, this is, right, this, is, this is incidental to our study in the book of Revelation. But I would just try to make this point to you as your pastor. If you really believe that you live in a secular scientific world and that that secular scientific world is untouched with religion, you are really not paying attention. And that is the religion. 
that is the prevailing religion of the world in which we live. We just try to pretend that it's not. We just keep being told that it's not. That because it's science, it's not religion. But the Antichrist is not going to be encumbered with that kind of weight. It's all going to be religion to him. Right? This is the man who's going to stand up in the temple ultimately and declare that he himself is God. Not a great scientist, but God. But that is still yet down the road. And so men are groping in the darkness for answers. And all of that, folks, I'm going to say is this. Right? Some guy is going to stand up in the tribulation and go, hey, i got a Bible right here and I'll tell you exactly what's going on. It's God's judgment. And somebody's going to kill him for saying that. For the word of God and the testimony that he holds. That world is going to look very much like that even in the first four seals. People are going to be interpreting what's going on around them and the people who interpret what's going on around them in the light of the scripture are going to find themselves in great peril. But it's far from over. It is far from over. That is the Lord's point. Wherever we are in the tribulation at this point, we are far from seeing the end of martyrdom, says Jehovah God. So, who are these martyrs? I think they're tribulation-era saints. Just that simple. They are people who have stood up on behalf of Jesus Christ, behalf of God's Word, from the very beginning, in opposition to what is going on in the world, and they are paying what we would call the ultimate price. Additionally, folks, to go back to Revelation chapter 6, it appears in verses 9 and 10, and particularly in verse number 10, they cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? It seems to be that they themselves are orienting themselves within that time frame. That we are killed by people who are alive at that particular moment. And yet, they are among the earliest, and the assurance that is given to them is that there's going to be a little season. Look, the whole thing only lasts seven years. Now, that's a long time if you're spending it on the run trying not to be caught and killed. But in the grand scheme of things, seven years is a relatively brief span of time. It is truly a little season. One of the other things that lends us to believe that they are tribulation-era saints is what they want. Is what they want. When Stephen was martyred, he prayed for the forgiveness of those who martyred him. When Jesus was martyred, and I want to be very careful there because his death was a sacrificial substitutionary death, but he died because of the word of God and because of the testimony that he held. His prayer was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. These martyrs want vengeance. They seem to have a solid understanding of where their martyrdom fits in the timetable of God's activity. They want vengeance. 
They want vengeance from the one who is holy without sin and who is true without falsehood. Right? So they are appealing to the most righteous judge for the most righteous judgment. And in fact, folks, it's very interesting because you may have a note like this to this effect in your study Bible, if you have a study Bible. But the word Lord there is not the normal word that we find for Lord. In the Greek language, it would be the kurios, the master or the ruler. But this, again, is actually one of those Greek words that we just brought into our language and we use all the time. It is the word despot. How long, O despot, holy and true before you avenge us? But you may take comfort from this, folks. They are asking the question that God's people have been asking since the Garden of Eden, and that is when? Right? It's what we all want to know from God. We just keep coming back to him again and again and again with the same question, when? When are you going to do this? When is it going to happen? And they get the same answer that we always get. It's going to happen. It's just not going to happen right now. You'll just have to wait. So, again, folks, so just right to, to wind this down. We're just going to, we're just going to close this out. This, this seal, which unveils to us martyrs, not judgment. And I think that we could find that the sixth seal is part of the answer to the question. Right, how long? Well, I'm not done with the martyrs yet. But believe me, I'm not done acting yet either. That's the sixth seal. There will be people who stand for Jesus Christ, for the word of God, in spite of all that is going on in the world in the time of the tribulation. And, is, and God will ultimately vindicate him. It is, it is <clears throat> from the very beginning, folks, from the very first martyr, Abel, right? God has promised that blood that is spilt on the ground will be vindicated. And in fact, an interesting note in Genesis chapter 9 and verse number 5, God says that he is not only going to require the blood of every man that has been spilt, he's going to require the blood of every animal that has been spilt. Genesis 9, 5. Surely your blood of your lives will I require, at the hand of every beast will I require it. The hand of every beast will I require it. And at the hand of man, at the hand of every man's brother, will I require the life of man. And Isaiah 26, 21 tells us, Behold, the Lord cometh out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth also shall disclose, our King James Bible reads. It, it means to uncover her blood, and shall no more cover her slain. Right, so the retribution and the vengeance is coming. This is what God's promises. All right, we're going to stop there tonight. If you want to take your prayer bulletin out.